I am Lisa of Two Sober Chicks, part of the dynamic duo known as Julie and Lisa, who bring you our regular podcast. This is our speaker series edition where we borrow guests from the home group AA Solution Seekers online. Please enjoy. Thank you so much. He automatically said yes. Um, I heard him on Great Facts and he was just stupendous. And I'm so grateful that he's here. And um, I'll let him tell his story from this point forward. Thank you so much, Michael, for coming in and telling the story. So um, do we have a timer? If not, then I'll talk. So thank you so much. Um, Michael, if you would just speak for 45 minutes or um, thank you so much. Come on in. Certainly. Thank you, Stacey. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate being here. Um, what a beautiful morning. I uh I, I'm amazed at Alcoholics Anonymous and amazed at my life within Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, you know, no matter what the curveball is, no matter how confusing moments might be, um, life overall is absolutely spectacular. I uh, I don't always know the answers. I don't certainly have any secret information. I certainly don't have anything that's, um, I don't know, sort of magic in nature, but I but what's interesting to me is that things seem to work out famously when before I met you, no matter what I did, things seemed to just, just crash. Didn't matter how, you know, it was just varying uh, speeds of crashing. It wasn't about not crashing. It was when, not if, you know. And 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 when I look back and reflect on that, I, I joined Alcoholics Anonymous in uh, August 27th, 1991. And, uh, and and everything was crashing. Absolutely everything was crashing. Um, I had no self-respect. Uh, my family was frustrated and didn't really want me around. Um, I had lost a, a, a fiance in my life. She was a, a wonderful lady. And uh, I just, I heard her too often. Uh, she was wise enough to get away from me. Um, sad, but true. Um, I had very few friends. I, I had a number of people that I sort of was around. A big book calls them Fairweather Friends, I think, in Bill's story. And, you know, it's interesting, right? Like, uh, I had no people that could depend on me. Um, there was just nobody that could depend on me. And uh, I was letting everyone down. I had really no idea why. I knew it had something to do with booze. But, you know, that... Uh, there was a great misunderstanding in my heart about what alcoholism is. I sat down with a gentleman who became my first sponsor in this little cafe called the Crackpot. You know, it's kind of ironic, but that was the name of the place we were at. It's the Crackpot. So here we are sitting there having coffee. And uh, and I asked him to be my sponsor. And he said something along the lines, I'll tell you my story. You tell me your story. And at the end of that exchange, we think we can work together. I'll sponsor you. And uh, and this gentleman was tr tremendous. And he he went on to tell me a story. And candidly, I didn't hear much at all of what he was what he was saying. I, I was kind of writing my own story in my own head, more listening to me than him as he was talking. Uh, I'm sure no one on the phone has been nobody nobody on Zoom has ever been in that spot, but I was in that spot. And uh, as he was explaining things, uh, it just right over my head. I I, I just wasn't there. And he finishes up and he's like, okay, kid, it's your turn. And I jumped in and tried to start telling him my story. And I didn't really even know if I had a story. I mean, I just thought I'd tell him drunk, drunk experiences and 
He would see how common they were. He would see how regular and how often they were. And he would concede that I had alcoholism and he would help me out and sponsor me. I'm talking about that, like in that fashion, in that way. And uh, and he just sort of cuts me off. And he said, you, you have no idea what alcoholism is, do you, kid? And I, I remember sort of being stunned, you know. And, um, well, of course I do. I mean, I'm sober 62 days now. Like, what do you mean I don't know what alcoholism is, right? And he said, well, then what is it? And he said it in such a way that, like, he assumed I should know the answer. And there, first of all, that there is an answer and that I should know that answer. And uh, I just sort of looked at him and I said, well, it's when you're chronically drunk. Alcoholism is being, you know, chronically drunk. And he said some words to me. And I got to tell you, they radically changed how I view alcoholism and therefore recovery from alcoholism. And his words were this, very simply. Mike, Mike, alcoholism and drunkenness have almost nothing to do with each other. Now, that man was right. I've met many, many people over the years who haven't had a drink in decades and yet are still suffering from the disease of alcoholism. In my life personally, there's been periods of my sobriety where although I hadn't drank, I can tell you that the recovery process was not manifesting itself in any way that anyone around me could even see, smell, notice remotely be inclined to say this guy's on his way. Um, and, that, and that changes the idea of what alcoholism is for me. You know, um, I remember uh, there was a guy and, and uh, we were in a meeting together. And this, this poor man was, uh, was around for 30 or 40 years. And somebody made a comment to him. He turned and he jumped all over this newcomer. I mean, like brutally, F-bomb and everything, just went off on this kid. Um, he said, well, Mike, why would you bring that up? Why, why, why would you talk about something like that? Think, because it's a relevant thing, right? I, 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 Although I haven't done those specific things, in my time within Alcoholics Anonymous, um, my recovery has waned, varied. It's been very seemingly attuned and full of joy at times and then others sort of dark back in the shadows almost you know where you barely see past the shadow line um i've had varying experiences now call time all of them collectively i wouldn't exchange for a second but, but candidly i don't i don't want to come on here and just sort of pretend that um when i came in i started doing this stuff and then since then, if you listen closely, you can hear the angelic violins playing in the background every day until now. Like that, that is not my experience. My experience is this: those violins play loudly, fully, and completely when I am attuned with my maker. And when my selfishness gets in the way and I move back into those shadows I talked about, it's hard to hear. It's hard to hear. And, and one of the worst things I think that I can do, I don't know about anybody else, but, but one of the worst things that I can do is I can, um, and I've done it, pretended that I'm not in the shadows. That That is disrespectful to you, certainly not honorable in relationship to our principles we try to practice in this program. Um and I don't mean I come out of meeting and people talk about my problems. That, that's, that isn't at all what I mean. I mean, I have a sponsor. I should be using the sponsor. 
I have 12 steps. I should be using the 12 steps. I have 12 traditions. I should be using the 12 traditions. Uh, but, but sort of, at least in my experience, when we move into the shadow, sometimes we don't even know. We forget the tools. We forget what we have at our disposal, sort of, or at least I do. And, and, and then it becomes hard to find my way out. It's like I'm in a cavern and I got a headlight on, you know, one of those things that miners wear, but there's batteries around, the batteries around. And, I, and I'm looking around and I can't see anything and I can't find my way. And I don't want to tell you, right? I don't want to tell you. And that reminds me of me when I came in. One of my biggest concerns when I came in is this, that if you saw and knew me in the very way that I saw and knew me, you would want nothing to do with it. And I really didn't blame you for that. I didn't blame anybody for that, in or out of it. I, I didn't want to be around me. Right? I, I, that's why I kept altering my existence with booze. Right? I didn't want me to be seen by you because I knew what you would do if you actually saw me. You would leave. Couldn't blame you for that at all. Couldn't blame you for that. By the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, it would seem to me that I really thought I had a drinking problem, that if the booze went away, I might be a nicer guy. And what I really meant by that, I think what I really meant by that, was that the booze is sort of a magnifying glass for what's wrong with me. And I'll have a much easier time covering up what's wrong with me without the booze. And I know the booze adds all kinds of problems. I know the booze is just... Man, it's one of those things that sort of I do embarrassing things and I end up hurting people and saying stuff I don't want to say. And, and so if that left, there'd be a higher probability that I could sort of masquerade around as a guy who at least wasn't an idiot all the time. I mean, I had no idea what you were even offering me. I really didn't. And there's no way I could see it. Not, not in the remotest way. I don't, I don't believe in any way, shape, or form I could really see what you were offering me at the time. But for me, what I think has to happen is that I have to understand what alcoholism is. And if I recognize that I have this thing, this threefold malady that our big book talks about, a physical allergy to alcohol, that is to say, if you're new to AA, first of all, welcome. God bless you. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to this meeting. I hope you keep coming back to AA. And if there's ever a time where I can help you, please feel free to reach out. But, but I didn't realize what alcoholism was when I came in. And we went through the doctor's opinion in the big book. And Dr. Silkworth is very clear about this physical allergy that for some reason he believed, and my behavior also confirms this theory, that when alcohol goes into the body of someone who has this allergy, has this sort of, I don't know, malfunction of some kind, that they have an inability to control the drinking that they do afterward once they start. And that was exactly my case. When, when I would go out for one or two, it would end up being 10 or 12, 14, 16. If I was going home at 7.30 that night and made a commitment to you or other people that I loved, that I was going to be home at 7.30, trust me, it was 1 a.m. For some reason, and I don't know why, I don't care why, I'm just telling you that my behavior reflects this theory that we have an allergy. And that the manifestation of that allergy is what we call the phenomenon of craving in alcoholics anonymous. That when booze hits my lips, when booze goes down my throat, when booze hits my belly, 
I have an inability to differ, excuse me, I have an inability to control the amount of alcohol that I put into me. The craving is so overwhelming that I will continue to drink no matter how who or how often or how passionately or how authentically I've promised you that won't happen again. It, it doesn't, it's beyond my control. And so as Joe and I sat there in this little cafe talking uh, about his sponsoring me or not sponsoring me or whatever that would turn out to be, and he said those words, the drunkenness and alcoholism have almost nothing to do with each other. Uh, I, I was befuddled at that. So here I have this allergy. And as Joe continued me through the book, there were some things that we saw. In the doctor's opinion, Bill, or excuse me, um, Dr. Silkworth describes the second component. And the second component is this thing that we call um, the mental problem, right? Or, or this, uh, this inability, as Dr. Silkworth calls it, this inability to differentiate the true from the false. Think of that. Think about that wording. What, what if I had an inability to differentiate automobiles from motorcycles? Like you would think I was pretty weird, right? I come and pick you up and in my automobile and I have my I have my helmet on and I'm dressed in my leathers. I got my chaps on. And you're like, what are you doing? Why are you wearing that in the car? And I'm like, this is a motorcycle. You'd be like, okay. I'm driving myself. Like you would just stay out of the vehicle and do your own thing. Like I wouldn't blame you now, right? But like just, or, or you know, an inability to differentiate an apple from a banana. Like you would think something's wrong. Hey, can I have a banana split and somebody brings you applesauce? Like you just, what is going on? And that's what was wrong, right? According to Dr. Silkworth, and I want to be clear on this, my own behavior, my own behavior. Dr. Silkworth described the problem and then I put his description up against my life and I went, that's me, that's me, that's me. We call that identification in Alcoholics Anonymous. And until that takes place with another person, there is very little hope in my recovery. And, and, and my thing was an inability to differentiate the truth from the false. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that false premises of life look true to me, so I believe them. Here's the problem. Here's the other problem. True premises of life, things that are true in life, they look false to me, so I don't believe them. I have an inability to differentiate the true from the false. So I'm walking around life, drunk or not with an inability to differentiate between the true and the false. No wonder I can't get a grip on anything. No wonder I can't get traction in life. No wonder, no matter how much I love Mary, Cassie, Jamie, Lisa, Stacy, I'm going to hurt you. No, no, no wonder how many promises I make to Mike or Keith or Jewel or Raina. It doesn't matter. I'm going to, I'm going to mess this thing up. Right? I'm going to mess it up. And so as we were sitting there in this place, he says, "I look before I tell you the good news. I, I got to tell you the bad news. First of all, Mike, do you have alcoholism? Do you, do you have this allergy? And do you have this inability to differentiate the truth from the false?" And I, honestly, after our conversations and going through the big book, specifically the doctor's opinion, and and also more about alcoholism really helped me. That's a great chapter, chapter three. You see, I don't know about you, but I had this thing that I believed. AA was offering me. And that was called sobriety. 
I had had sobriety in increments of weeks and months prior to coming here, varying degrees, but I had them. And Joe looked at me and he said, look, if you've been sober longer than 72 hours, man, you had this thing we call sobriety. And I was like, really? He's like, oh, yeah. After about 72 hours, we'll call it just, you know what? Just throw another day on, right? 96 days, 96 hours. You know what? Put five days on that. It doesn't matter. If you were sober for weeks or months at some point and you think AA is sort of selling you sobriety, like you had it. You had it without us. You did it on your own. It's not bad, kid. If you had what you think we're selling you, what happened? If you had sobriety, which, and let's be candid, physical sobriety comes at 72 hours or so, even if it's four days or five days, like you went weeks. There was no more booze in your system, Mike, than, than there is today after 32 years in AA. You, 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 you aren't more sober now than after that line where all the booze left. And I was like, oh, yeah, like that sort of made sense to me. He's like, well, look, if you had this very solution that you think we're trying to sell you, which is sobriety, like, why'd you go back? What happened? How does that work? He had me, he had me, right? Because I really believed that AA was selling sobriety. And and so what's interesting is I, I didn't have an answer for him. So he sends me to this chapter in our big book called Chapter 3 more about alcoholism. And that story, whatever else it might be, whatever other insights about life that chapter might give us, it is absolutely 100% crystal clear that it is loaded with story after story after story after story of men who desired to quit drinking actually were sober, met members of AA, and were trying to stay that way. And they ended up drunk. That's amazing to me. That's amazing to me. AA chose to put a chapter in their book about men and women who were sober and went out and drank. Like that would seem to me like they're, oh, don't, I wouldn't put that one in. I wouldn't put, since you're selling sobriety to Mike, you shouldn't put that chapter in because it gives the appearance that sobriety isn't enough. And at least in my case, as I understand alcoholism, as I've sort of understood it in the book over the years through good sponsorship and trying to read that book and understand what it's trying to say to me, sobriety is enough. And sobriety is never going to be enough. I've met countless people over the years that I've been an AA sponsor, a ton of people. I'm very blessed to be an AA and being a member here. And, and I've met many, many people with 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years of sobriety who are suffering and cannot figure out what's wrong. And we go back to step one and we talk about the basics of what is wrong with us to begin with. And it's like, it's like their eyes open up because we missed it. Somewhere along the line, we got the idea that having a whole bunch of Roman numerals on a chip is recovered in AA. God bless those numbers. I, I would have nothing in life without those numbers. I, I revere and I respect Time in Alcoholics Anonymous. But isn't what I suffer from? I suffer from alcoholism. And that is a threefold malady, not a single 
fold now. First is my body, as we talked about. Second is my mind. And as we sat in this booth and I said to Joe, like, uh, so how do we fix this? <laughs> you know, he got a smile on his face. He kind of looked back at me. He's like, uh, well, before I give you the good news, kid, I got to give you the really bad news. I'm like, that wasn't the really bad news. He's like, that wasn't remotely close to the bad news. I'm like, well, what, is, what is the bad news? And he said, look, uh, you have this physical allergy? I said, yeah. He said, well, we're not physicians. We can't fix your body. Bad news is you're going to have that allergy until the day you die. So if you stay sober for two weeks or two months or 22 years and you drink again, that allergy is right back in place, pal, and you're off to the races again, and there's nothing we can do about that. We can't eliminate the allergy manifesting itself in our body. There's no way we can help you with it. I was like, wow. He's like, oh, and this mind thing that we just admitted, this inability to differentiate true things from false things, right? Uh, Mike, we're not counselors, therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists. Like, we can't help you with that either. And I was like, oh, my God, this is terrible news. He said, oh, no, no, it's horrible news. Don't miss the, it's not terrible, right? Terrible would be not, you know, there's hope there. No, no, there's nothing, Mike, that we or you and I can do to fix this. Zero. And it just took my breath away, man. I, I remember thinking, look, I, I came here because I needed your help. And what I hear you saying is there is none. And he said, well, I'm glad you clarified that because I am not saying there isn't help. I'm not saying there isn't help. I'm saying don't believe that AA has the power to fix it because it doesn't. What we do in AA is we don't work on the first part because we can't fix it. And we don't work on the second part because we can't fix it. We only work on the third part. And when that third part is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. And I said, well, what is that third part? He said, oh, brother, that's your broken soul. That's, that's the part of you that has felt dirty and shameful and lost and confused and separated from yourself, from your family, from your friends, from God. And so you've acted. You've pretended to be something you're not to the rest of the world to convince them you're something that you're not so that they won't leave. That agony inside your heart, Mike, that's the what that's what we work on in AI. You see, our big book says lack of power, that was our dilemma. It doesn't say lack of sobriety, that was our dilemma. It says lack of power. And so, Mike, what we need to do is we need to find a power by which you can live. And it has to be a power greater than yourselves, obviously. And I looked at him, and I'm paraphrasing here, but I said something along the lines of, well, how am I supposed to find this power? He said, that is exactly what our big book is about. Mike. The main object there is to enable you to find a power by which you can live. And it has to be a power greater than yourself, obviously. And I was like, now, I only knew this guy like a week or two, right? And so suddenly, we're I'm talking to another human being about the greatest secret of my life that I had never met before. I can't even believe I'm in the middle of this conversation. I feel like I'm nuts, right? He's asking me questions about my soul, and I don't even know this guy. But I'm in. I mean, he's got me. I'm in. You know? 
but I'm still a little afraid to like fully like lay this out to the guy to agree with him. I sort of still want to be different because I'm, I, I, I just felt uncomfortable. So he's like, Mike, do you have this allergy? I was like, yeah. He's like, do you have this mind that lies to you? I said, yeah. He said, do you have this broken soul, this third part? And I was like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Because I, you know, I didn't know the guy. And it felt all of a sudden weird that I'm in this conversation with a guy. I, I hardly even know. It sounds crazy. So I was like, well, I don't know. And he's like, well, let me ask you some questions and you can determine for yourself, which is all that matters, by the way, that you have this thing. It doesn't matter if I think you do. It doesn't matter if your parents think you do. It doesn't matter if your, your, your spouse or your, or your children think you do. What matters is that you think you do. Or that you know you're not. You don't have it. And by the way, if you don't have it, that's fantastic news. It means you don't have to be here. But if you constantly are guessing whether you have had it or whether you don't have it, then you're going to get all caught up in that and not do the work anyway. So it's good to just determine whether or not you have it to yourself. And if you don't have it or you think you don't have it, and a few months down the road, Mike, you decide, no, 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 I do have it. I want you to know something. You are welcome back. You are always welcome back. No matter what you do, kid, you're welcome to come back. I was blown away by that. So then I just, okay, it's probably good that I figure this out, that I decide, you know, what it is and whether I have it. It's okay, got the two. This third one, though, was interesting to me. He said, look, we're looking for this number one symptom of a broken soul, Mike. That's lack of power. So I'm going to ask you some questions, and you just answer them inside of yourself to your own satisfaction. You don't have to answer them out loud to me unless you want to. I was like, okay. So he says, Mike, uh, is it wrong to lie? What an odd question. What a, what a question, right? And, and of course, this was so obvious. The answer was so obvious that I wanted to say it out loud. I wanted to tell him I knew this answer because I like to look good. I'm a pretty smart guy. And in case he was unaware of that, I felt like this would be an opportunity to prove how intelligent I actually am. So I looked him right in the eye and I told him the right answer that any third grader would have, right? And that is, yes, it is wrong to lie. Felt very proud. I got one right, you know? And then he says, uh, okay, let me follow up with this. Um, we've established it's wrong to lie, right? I said, yeah. He said, okay, do you lie? Do you lie? Man, he had. I got to tell you, I lied about everything. I lied about stuff I didn't need to lie about. And they would be beautiful fabrications. I mean, like Shakespeare would be impressed at some of these fallacies I was telling, right? The way I would tell the story, the emphasis on other people, how screwy they had done it. And what I was thinking at the time before I acted this, I mean, I had all this stuff going on. There were sometimes I told a lie where I was shocked at how good the lie was and thought to myself, you should remember this. You're going to need it again. Like, I mean, there were times where the lying would just pour out of me without any thought process. I didn't construct the lie in my head. I just opened my gob and started talking and lies poured out. And somehow at the end, I could mesh them into some level of cohesion. The end. I could get there. And I, and I was stunned at that question. Well, if you know it's wrong, do you lie? And I was like, well, yes, but 
only when absolutely necessary, right? You know, like when someone asks me a question, those are the only times I lie was when someone asked me a question. Anyway, and then he says, okay, all right, how about this? Is it wrong to use an objectified way? And I was like, look, I have a mother, I have a sister, I have cousins, I have friends, of course it is. He said, can we talk about your last girlfriend? Uh, absolutely not. Let's move on, right? Hey, is it wrong to spend three to $500 more a month than you actually make? Buying things with money you don't have to impress people you don't like. And I was like, well, yeah. And he's like, well, can we have a look at your checkbook? Uh, absolutely not. Next question. You know, he must have gone through 20 to 25 behavior questions. The oughts of life, the shoulds of life, the things that any normal, emotionally balanced individual would know. I want to be clear. I got all of those right. I got every one of those right. And then he would follow it up with an application question about the behavior. And I got every one of those wrong. Isn't that interesting? I knew what to do, but I couldn't pull it off. I knew what I should be doing, but I couldn't make it happen in my life. And he said something to me. He said, Mike, the distance between your knowledge of how to live and your inability to actually live that way, there's only one word for that, Mike, powerless. Powerless. When you know what to do and you fail to do it, or when you know what to do and you can't pull it off. Man, he had me. He absolutely had me. He said in Alcoholics Anonymous, we call that an unmanageable life. You see, for, for a few years anyways, I misread that first step. Now, I want to be clear. I Phonetically, I said it right. It was on the wall. It was in my big book. I read it before meetings. People would hand cards. Or the, and it says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives would become unmanageable. And I would read it that way. That our lives had become unmanageable. I would read it that way. But in my head, I would define it as mismanaged. You see, mismanaged and unmanageable, not remotely the same word. Mismanaged means I have the power, the ability, the skill, the wisdom to live life and do it authentically and correctly with love. And I made mistakes along the way. Not what it says. Unmanageable means I do not have the power to live my life in, a, in, a, in an effectual man, in an effectual way. It's not mismanaged. It's not that I could do it and I made some mistakes. It's that I wasn't designed to do it. And I found that in step two. I found that human beings like myself were never intended by our creator to live without him. And I was trying to do that. I was trying to prove that I could live it out. No wonder it didn't work. You know, my buddy down the street, he, he bought a new truck, a new Chevy truck. And imagine if he went to this, it's beautiful. I mean, it is absolutely beautiful. If you, if you drove that into a gas station and you said, oh, I'm gonna, could you fill this up, please? And you want to run around. Now, today, everything is self-serve, so you'd be only mistake if you did it. But right next to the gas pump are these blue bottles of windshield washer fluid. Imagine if you put the windshield washer fluid into the gas tank and the gas into the windshield washer deal underneath the hood. Right? It's true, they both need the fluid. 
And he would destroy both. He would destroy that truck if he put the wrong fluid into that engine. You see, that's what I was doing. I was living my life on me. And that's the wrong fuel for a human life. That's the wrong fuel. No wonder I broke down all the time. No wonder I couldn't hold it together. No wonder I was messing up. I was running on the wrong fuel. Human beings run on the grace of God. I didn't know that. I was running on me. I was running on me. And then I had the audacity to tell me I wasn't insane. <laughs> I mean, imagine if the owner's manual said, run on God. And I went, nah, I'm going to run on gasoline. Imagine I mean, just like, what are you doing? You just ignore everything that's in front of you. And you just make up your own rules as you go along. And then you blame everybody in your wake that you've hurt for what you did. That's insanity. That's unmanageability. Because I didn't even know I was doing it. I was that blind. I didn't even know I was doing it. But I was. And I got to this place called step two. Because I realized that. And I asked Joe to sponsor me. I said, yep, I got it. He said, look, if you understand you have this allergy, this mind that lies to you, and this broken soul, that's step one. You admit that. You make the conclusion. You've heard the information. You've thrown your experience up against the data. And you find you have what we say alcoholism is. That's step one. I said, okay, done. He said, step two is very much the same. He said, you go to those meetings and you listen to what people say when they talk about God. Read those stories, Mike, in the back of the book, right? You read those that are salt and pepper. You, you go to conferences and you listen to speak people who are speaking from the podium or you look and listen from people who speak on those CDs or those cassette tapes we had when I was growing up, right? And I came in the A. And, and listen to what they're saying. And you know what they were, what every one of them were saying. The people in my home group, the people in regular meetings I went to, the people in the back, very, very simply said this. Right? My life was messed up. And I began to see that it was a life without God that was causing that mess up. So I tried as best I could to work the remaining steps. And I had an experience with that God. And now that God, that God is my aid. That God is my help. That's really all we ever say. We say it in different ways. We say it back and forth. We say it over and over. But that's it. That's what we say. This is what I was like. This is what happened. This is what I'm like now. And for me, that was it. I was my fuel. I did some steps in Alcoholics Anonymous, all of them actually. Not perfectly, but I made my efforts to do all of them. And then I found that God should be my fuel. And I found out that he was kind enough and gracious enough to look past everything I had done to push him away. So that he would embrace another child of his and bring that child home. That's true. That's true. And I don't care what you've done before you got to AA, while you've been in AA, or what you're planning on doing tomorrow. That I don't care. God is still with us. God still loves us. He still desires a relationship with us. And if we will simply walk that path that we call the 12 steps, we will find him on that path. You know, it, the, the steps aren't magic. The steps aren't like some hocus pocus thing where like suddenly I was a jerk and then I do some steps and now I'm a good guy. Like, I'm sorry, that's not what I think it is. 
for me, it's more like, hey, I was completely lost and couldn't see anything. And I did some steps and now I can see some things. And if I'll stay in the light, it's likely I'll see more things. But I get the will to walk that road. I get the will to continue on more and more and see better and see better and see better each year in spite of the challenges, in spite of the broken hearts, in spite of the mistakes I make along the way. And I make them. You know, sometimes we talk like alcohol is very dangerous. And it is, and it is for sure. I got to tell you, I think there's something more dangerous. And and, and, and it's, it's, it's when we come to Alcoholics Anonymous and we don't do the work. And we sit and we listen to all of the language and we learn all of the clever phrases. And then when we need help, when there's something that happens to us, we feel like we can't go ask people for help. Maybe we've been around a few months or a few years or more or more. And we're hiding behind this veneer of knowledge, this veneer of witty, clever phrases, this veneer of mottos and slogans. And we find ourselves with a broken heart underneath that and behind it. And because we've portrayed ourselves as someone who doesn't need help, and we've had our act together forever, that it's impossible sometimes, it feels like anyway, to reach out. It isn't impossible, but we sometimes feel like it is. So if you're new to AA, please start out right away, doing this work, getting a sponsor, being involved in that book, letting the steps bring you to this God who loves you. If you're an old timer in AA, whatever that means, thank you for your example. Thank you for your leadership. We stand on the shoulders of giants here. So thank you for that. And if you're like me, you're someone in the middle. Been sober for 32 years. That's more than some and less than others. I'm in the middle. Man, don't hide behind the veneer. If you know there's amends that haven't been made, behaviors that haven't been inventory, knees that haven't been bent in a while, prayers from a broken heart that need to be said within your life. If that's you today in Alcoholics Anonymous, don't let you be the same person tomorrow. Pick up that phone and call somebody. Get on your knees and pray to somebody. Go to a meeting and serve somebody. But don't be the same person tomorrow that longs and aches and needs change today. Change is available to me. Uh, I know I'm supposed to close here. I want to read one thing to you. It's out of the 12 and 12. And, and I really, really love it. Um, it's in step 11. And to me, prayer and meditation is the essence of recovery. It's how I charge my battery so I can go out into the world and live out step 12. Right? Here's what it says. Those of us who have come to make regular use of prayer would no more do without it than we would refuse air, food, or sunshine. And for the same reason, when we refuse air, light, or food, the body suffers. And when we turn away from meditation and prayer, we likewise deprive our minds, our emotions, uh, and our institutions, uh, excuse me, intuitions, of uh, virtually needed support, vitally needed support. As the body can fail its purpose for lack of nourishment, so can the soul. We all need the light of God's reality, the nourishment of his strength, and the atmosphere of his grace. To an amazing extent, the facts of AA life confirm this ageless truth. There is a direct linkage 
among self-examination, meditation, and prayer. Taken separately, these practices can bring much relief and benefit. But when they are logically related and interwoven, the result is an unshakable foundation for life. How about that? An unshakable foundation for life. Now and then we may be granted a glimpse of that ultimate reality, which is God's kingdom. And we will be comforted and assured that our own destiny in that realm will be secure for so long as we try, however faultingly, to find and to do the will of our own creator. You see, I think part of part of the functioning of Alcoholics Anonymous, part of the essence of AA to be vibrant for the rest of my life is to seek and to try to do the will of God. And what we just read says that I can get a glimpse of that, just a glimpse of it. And I don't know, we've probably all had that glimpse. Maybe you walk into a newcomer's meeting and you sort of see someone broken in the corner and you think, go talk to him. Go be kind to her. And maybe you do, maybe you don't. Maybe there's that moment at the dinner table where the spouse, you can just you can just tell yourself, and you're doing it, by the way, what they think of you. And how you're going to respond when they say this. And when she says that, I'm going to say this. And when she does that, then I'm doing Whoa, whoa, whoa. Somewhere in the midst of all of that chaos, you hear, Shh, why don't you pray for her? See, I don't know how your world works. I'm just telling you about mine. And I I don't get like a whole big, huge, thick book of what God's will is for me. I get moment-to-moment possibilities that love is his will for me. Moment-to-moment opportunities to practice love right now in small, really small, puny increments that if I do over a long period of time, my life changes miraculously. What I want is a magic, I want a bomb to go off. And then I'm fine and you're fine and I never have conflicts and pain anymore and everything's great. It's not how my life works. My life works just like my watch does. That's how my life works. Click, 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 one second at a time. And within those seconds, I get a glimpse that he would like me to love the person in front of me. And maybe that's his will. I kind of think it is. And if, and if I can stay focused on those glimpses, those glimpses become a glance. And eventually, I hope, they become a gaze. I want to thank you all for allowing me to be here today. I want to thank Stacy for offering me an opportunity to share a little bit of what AA and God has done for me. And uh, man, I'll tell you, if there's ever anybody out there that needs some help, if you ever need someone to talk to and I can assist in any way, please. Do me the honor of, of offering me an opportunity to do so. I, I, I would greatly appreciate it. It's, it's how I stay sober. God bless you all. Thank you for having me. I love you. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. All that good stuff. Enjoy the holidays. And that was another fantastic speaker from AA Solution Seekers Online Group. Thank you so much for joining us as we continue to bring you great speaker one after another from Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm Lisa. Thanks for joining us. 